This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. Can't see it, but it's it's uh, a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so uh, this month we're going to be doing Jack London stories. So check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes. So check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast. You'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about uh, underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, listen for the episode of, uh, I think it's D U G S. Uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds. If you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself, Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also, probably we're going to have some of these shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us. But, you know, I love producing podcasts. So if you've got a podcast idea, track me down and we'll do something. Especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um... I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But, yeah, no, um, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So, yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio and keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London, right now. The Seawolf by Jack London. Chapter 13 For three days I did my own work, and Thomas Mugridge's too, and I flatter myself that I did his work well. I know that it won Wolf Larsen's approval, while the sailors beamed with satisfaction during the brief time I resumed last night. The first clean bite since I come aboard, Harrison said to me at the galley door as he returned the dinner pots and pans from the forecastle. Somehow, Tommy's grub always tastes of grease, stale grease, and I reckon he ain't changed his shirt since he left Frisco. I know he hasn't, I answered. And I'll bet he sleeps in it, Harrison answered. And you won't lose, I agreed. The same shirt, and he hasn't had it off once in all this time. But three days was all Wolf Larson allowed him in which to recover from the effects of the beating. 
On the fourth day, lame and sore, scarcely able to see, so close were his eyes, he was hailed from his bunk by the nape of the neck and set to his duty. He sniffed and wept, but Wolf Larsen was pitiless. And see that you serve no more slops, was his parting injunction. No more grease and dirt, mind. And a clean shirt occasionally, or you'll get a toe over the side. Understand? Thomas Muggridge crawled weakly across the galley floor, and a short lurch of the ghost sent him staggering. In attempting to recover himself, he reached for the iron railing which surrounded the stove and kept the pots from sliding off. But he missed the railing, and his hand, with his weight behind it, landed squarely on the hot surface. There was a sizzle and odor of burning flesh, and a sharp cry of pain. Oh God, God, what have I done? He wailed, sitting down in the coal box and nursing his new hurt by rocking back and forth. Why has all this come on me? It makes me fast sick. It does. And I try so hard to go through life honest and hurt nobody. The tears were running down his puffed and discolored cheeks and his face was drawn with pain. A savage expression flitted across him. Ow, oh, I ate him. Ow, oh, I ate him. He gritted out. Who? I asked. But the poor wretch was weeping again over his misfortunes. Less difficult it was to guess whom he hated than whom he did not hate, for I had come to see a malignant devil in him which impelled him to hate all the world. I sometimes thought that he hated even himself, so grotesquely had life dealt with him, and so monstrously. At such moments a great sympathy welled up within me, and I felt shame that I had ever joyed in his discomfiture or pain. Life had been unfair to him. It had played him a scurvy trick when it fashioned him into the thing he was, and it had played him scurvy tricks ever since. What chance had he to be anything else than he was? And as though answering my unspoken thought, he wailed, I never had a chance, not half a chance. Who is there to send me to school, or put Tommy in me hungry belly, or wipe my bloody nose for me when I was a kitty? Whoever did anything for me, eh? Who, I say? Never mind, Tommy, I said, placing a soothing hand on his shoulder. Cheer up, it'll all come right in the end. You've long years before you, and you can make anything you please of yourself. It's a lie! It's a bloody lie! He shouted in my face, flinging off the hand. It's a lie, and you know it. I'm already made, and made out of leavings and scraps. It's all right for you, ump. You was born a gentleman. You never knew what it was like to go hungry, to cry yourself asleep with your little belly gnawing and gnawing like a rat inside you. It can't come right. If I was president in the United States tomorrow, I would have filled my belly for one time when I was a kitty and it went empty. How could it, I say? I was born to suffering and sorrow. I've had more cruel suffering than any ten men, I have. I've been in hospital left me bleeding life. I've had the fever in Aspirin Well, in Havana, in New Orleans. I near died of the scurvy and was rotten with it six months in Barbados. 
smallpox in Honolulu, two broken legs in Shanghai, pneumonia in Unalaska, tree busted ribs, and my insides all twisted in Frisco. And here I am now. Look at me. Look at me. My ribs kicked loose from my back again. I'll be coughing blood before I belts. How can it be made up to me, I ask? Who's going to do it? God? Oh, God must have aided me when he signed me on for a voyage in this blooming world of his. This tirade against destiny went on for an hour or more, and then he buckled to his work, limping and groaning, and in his eyes a great hatred for all created things. His diagnosis was correct, however, for he was seized with occasional sicknesses, during which he vomited blood and suffered great pain. And as he said, it seemed God hated him too much to let him die, for he ultimately grew better and waxed more malignant than ever. Several days more passed before Johnson crawled on deck and went about his work in a half-hearted way. He was still a sick man, and I more than once observed him creeping painfully aloft to a topsail, or drooping wearily as he stood at the wheel. But, still worse, it seemed that his spirit was broken. He was abject before Wolf Larsen, and almost groveled to Johansson. Not so was the conduct of Leech. He went about the deck like a tiger cub, glaring his hatred openly at Wolf Larsen and Johansson. I'll do for you yet, you slab-footed Swede, I heard him say to Johansson one night on deck. The mate cursed him in the darkness, and the next moment some missile struck the galley a sharp rap. There was more cursing and a mocking laugh, and when all was quiet, I stole outside and found a heavy knife embedded over an inch in the solid wood. A few minutes later, the mate came fumbling about in search of it, but I returned it privily to Leech next day. He grinned when I handed it over, yet it was a grin that contained more sincere thanks than a multitude of the verbosities of speech common to the members of my own class. Unlike anyone else in the ship's company, I now found myself with no quarrels on my hands and in the good graces of all. The hunters possibly no more than tolerated me, though none of them disliked me, while Smoke and Henderson, convalescent under a deck awning and swinging day and night in their hammocks, assured me that I was better than any hospital nurse, and that they would not forget me at the end of the voyage when they were paid off, as though I stood in need of their money. I, who could have bought them out bag and baggage, and the schooner and its equipment a score of times over but upon me had devolved the task of tending their wounds and pulling them through, and I did my best by them. Wolf Larsen underwent another bad attack of headache, which lasted two days. He must have suffered severely, for he called me in and obeyed my commands like a sick child, but nothing I could do seemed to relieve him. At my suggestion, however, he gave up smoking and drinking, though why such a magnificent animal as he should have headaches at all puzzles me. "'Tis the hand of God, I'm telling you, is the way Lewis sees it. "'Tis a visitation for his black-hearted deeds, and there's more behind in coming, or else... "'Or else,' I prompted, "'God is not in not doing his duty, 
although it's me, I shouldn't say it. I was mistaken when I said that I was in the good graces of all. Not only does Thomas Muggeridge continue to hate me, but he has discovered a new reason for hating me. It took me no little while to puzzle it out, but I finally discovered that it was because I was more luckily born than he. Gentleman born, he put it. And still no more dead men, I twitted Lewis, when Smoke and Henderson, side by side, in friendly conversation, took their first exercise on deck. Lewis surveyed me with his shrewd gray eyes and shook his head portentously. She's a common, I tell you, and it'll be sheets and halyards. Stand by all hands when she begins to howl. I've had the feel of it this long time, and I can feel it now as plainly as I feel the rigging of a dark night. She's close. She's close. Who goes first? I queried. Not fat old Lewis, I promise you. He laughed. For tis in the bones of me, I know, that come this time next year, I'll be gazing in the old mother's eyes, weary with watching of the sea for the five sons she gave to it. What's he been saying to you? Thomas Muggridge demanded a moment later. That he's going home some day to see his mother, I answered diplomatically. I never had none was the Cockney's comment, as he gazed with lusterless, hopeless eyes into mine. End of chapter 13 The Sea Wolf by Jack London Chapter 14 It has dawned upon me that I have never placed a proper valuation upon womankind. For that matter, though not amative to any considerable degree so far as I have discovered, I was never outside the atmosphere of women until now. My mother and sisters were always about me, and I was always trying to escape them, for they worried me to distraction with their solicitude for my health and with their periodic inroads on my den when my orderly confusion, upon which I prided myself, was turned into worse confusion and less order, though it looked neat enough to the eye. I never could find anything when they had departed. But now, alas, how welcome would have been the field of their presence, the frau-frau and swish-swish of their skirts which I had so cordially detested. I am sure if I ever get home that I shall never be irritable with them again. They may dose me and doctor me morning, noon, and night, and dust and sweep and put my den to rights every minute of the day, and I shall only lean back and survey it all, and be thankful in that I am possessed of a mother and some several sisters, all of which has set me wondering, where are the mothers of these twenty and odd men on the ghost? It strikes me as unnatural and unhealthful that men should be totally separated from women and heard through the world by themselves. Coarseness and savagery are the inevitable results. Then they would be capable of softness and tenderness and sympathy. These men about me should have wives and sisters and daughters. Then they would be capable of softness and tenderness and sympathy. As it is, not one of them is married. In years and years, not one of them has been in contact with a good woman, or within the influence or redemption which irresistibly radiates from such a creature. There is no balance in their lives. Their masculinity, which in itself is of the brute, has been overdeveloped. 
the other and spiritual side of their natures has been dwarfed, atrophied, in fact. They are a company of celibates, grinding harshly against one another and growing daily more calloused from the grinding. It seems to me impossible sometimes that they ever had mothers. It would appear that they are a half-brute, half-human species, a race apart, wherein there is no such thing as sex, that they are hatched out by the sun like turtle eggs or receive life in some similar and sordid fashion, and that all their days they fester in brutality and viciousness, and in the end die as unlovely as they have lived. Rendered curious by this new direction of ideas, I talked with Johansson last night. The first superfluous words with which he has favored me since the voyage began. He left Sweden when he was 18, is now 38, and in all the intervening time has not been home once. He had met a townsman a couple of years before in some sailing boarding house in Chile, so that he knew his mother to be still alive. She must be a pretty old woman now, he said, staring meditatively into the binnacle and then jerking a sharp glance at Harrison, who was steering a point off the course. When did you last write to her? He performed his mental arithmetic aloud. Eighty-one? No. Eighty-two, eh? No. Eighty-three. Yes, eighty-three. Ten years ago. From some little port in Madagascar. I was trading. You see, he went on as though addressing his neglected mother across half the girth of the earth. Each year, I was going home. So what was the good to write? It was only a year. And each year something happened and I did not go. But I am mate now, and when I pay off at Frisco, maybe with $500, I will ship myself on a windjam around the Horn to Liverpool, which will give me more money. And then I will pay my passage from there home. Then she will not do any more work. But does she work now? How old is she? About 70, he answered. And then boastingly, we work from the time we are born until we die in my country. That's why we live so long. I'll live to be a hundred. I shall never forget this conversation. The words were the last I ever heard him utter. Perhaps they were the last he did utter, too. For, going down into the cabin to turn in, I decided that it was too stuffy to sleep below. It was a calm night. We were out of the trades, and the ghost was forging ahead barely a not an hour. So I tucked a blanket and pillow under my arm and went up on deck. As I passed between Harrison and the binnacle, which was built into the top of the cabin, I noticed that he was this time fully three points off. Thinking that he was asleep and wishing him to escape reprimand or worse, I spoke to him. But he was not asleep. His eyes were wide and staring. He seemed greatly perturbed, unable to reply to me. What's the matter? I asked. Are you sick? He shook his head, and with a deep sign as of awakening, caught his breath. You'd better get on your course, then, I chided. He put a few strokes over, and I watched the compass card swing slowly to north-northwest and steady itself with slight oscillations. I took a fresh hold on my bedclothes and was preparing to start on when some movement caught my eye and I looked astern to the rail. A sinewy hand, dripping with water, was clutching the rail. A second hand took form in the darkness beside it. I watched, fascinated. What visitant from the gloom of the deep was I to behold? Whatever it was, I knew that it was climbing aboard by the log line. I saw a head, 
the hair wet and straight shape itself, and then the unmistakable eyes and face of Wolf Larsen. His right cheek was red with blood which flowed from some wound in the head. He drew himself inboard with a quick effort and arose to his feet, glancing swiftly as he did so at the man at the wheel, as though to assure himself of his identity, and that there was nothing to fear from him. The sea water was streaming from him. It made little audible gurgles which distracted me. As he stepped toward me, I shrank back instinctively, for I saw that in his eyes which spelled death. All right, Hump, he said in a low voice. Where's the mate? I shook my head. Johansson, he called softly. Johansson! Where is he? he demanded of Harrison. The young fellow seemed to have recovered his composure, for he answered steadily enough. I don't know, sir. I saw him go for it a little while ago. So did I go for it. But you will observe that I didn't come back the way I went. Can you explain it? You must have been overboard, sir. Shall I look for him in the steerage, sir? I asked. Wolf Larsen shook his head. You wouldn't find him, Hump. But you'll do. Come on. Never mind your betting. Leave it where it is. I followed at his heels. There was nothing stirring amidships. Those cursed hunters, was his comment. Too damn fat and lazy to stand a four-hour watch. But on a forecastle head, we found three sailors asleep. He turned them over and looked at their faces. They composed the watch on deck, and it was the ship's custom in good weather to let the watch sleep with the exception of the officer, the helmsman, and the lookout. Who's lookout? he demanded. Me, sir, answered Holyoke, one of the deep-water sailors, a slight tremor in his voice. I winked off just this very minute, sir. I'm sorry, sir. It won't happen again. Did you hear or see anything on deck? No, sir. I... But Wolf Larsen had turned away with a snort of disgust, leaving the sailor rubbing his eyes with surprise at having been let off so easily. Softly now, Wolf Larsen warned me in a whisper as he doubled his body into the forecastle scuttle and prepared to descend. I followed with a quaking heart. What was to happen I knew no more than I did know what had happened. But blood had been shed and it was through no whim of Wolf Larsen that he had gone over the side with his scalp laid open. Besides, Johansson was missing. It was my first descent into the forecastle, and I shall not soon forget my impression of it caught as I stood on my feet at the bottom of the ladder. Built directly in the eyes of the schooner, it was of the shape of a triangle, along the three sides of which stood the bunks, in double tier, twelve of them. It was no larger than a hall bedroom in Grub Street, and yet twelve men were herded into it to eat and sleep and carry on all the functions of living. My bedroom at home was not large, yet it could have contained a dozen similar forecasts. And taking into consideration the height of the ceiling, a score at least. It smelled sour and musty, and by the dim light of the swinging sea lamp, I saw every bit of available wall space hung deep with sea boots, oilskins, and garments, clean and dirty, of various sorts. These swung back and forth with every roll of the vessel, giving rise to a brushing sound, as of trees against a roof or wall. Somewhere a boot thumped loudly and at irregular intervals against the wall, and though it was a mild night on the sea, 
there was a continual chorus of the creaking timbers and bulkheads and of abysmal noises beneath the flooring. The sleepers did not mind. There were eight of them, the two watches below, and the air was thick with the warmth and odor of their breathing, and the ear was filled with the noise of their snoring and of their sighs and half-groans, tokens plain of the rest of the animal man. But were they sleeping? All of them? Or had they been sleeping? This was evidently Wolf Larsen's quest, to find the men who appeared to be asleep and who were not asleep, or who had not been asleep very recently. And he went about it in a way that reminded me of a story out of Boccaccio. He took the sea lamp from its swinging frame and handed it to me. He began at the first bunks forward on the starboard side. In the top one lay Ofti Ofti, a Kanaka and splendid seaman so named by his mates. He was asleep on his back and breathing as placidly as a woman. One arm was under his head, the other lay on top of the blankets. Wolf Larsen put thumb and forefinger to the wrist and counted the pulse. In the midst of it the Kanaka roused. He awoke as gently as he slept. There was no movement of the body whatever. The eyes only moved. They flashed wide open, big and black and stared unblinking into our faces. Wolf Larsen put his finger to his lips as a sign for silence, and the eyes closed again. In the lower bunk lay Lewis, grossly fat and warm and sweaty, asleep unfeignedly and sleeping laboriously. While Wolf Larsen held his wrist, he stirred uneasily, bowing his body so that for a moment it rested on shoulders and heels. His lips moved, and he gave voice to this enigmatic utterance. A shilling's worth a quarter, but keep your lamps out for through penny bits, or the publicans will shove em on you for sixpence. Then he rolled over on his side with a heavy, sobbing sigh, saying, A sixpence is a tanner, and a shilling a bomb, but what a pony is, I don't know. Satisfied with the honesty of his and the Kanaka's sleep, Wolf Larsen passed on to the next two monks on the starboard side occupied top and bottom, as we saw in the light of the sea lamp, by Leach and Johnson. As Wolf Larsen bent down to the lower bunk to take Johnson's pulse, I, standing erect and holding the lamp, saw Leach's head rise stealthily as he peered over the side of his bunk to see what was going on. He must have divined Wolf Larsen's trick and the sureness of detection for the light was at once dashed from my hand and the forecastle was left in darkness. He must have leaped also at the same instant straight down upon Wolf Larsen. The first sounds were those of a conflict between a bull and a wolf. I heard a great infuriated bellow go up from Wolf Larsen and from Leech a snarling that was desperate and blood-curdling. Johnson must have joined him immediately so that his abject and groveling conduct on deck for the past few days had been no more than planned deception. I was so terror-stricken by this fight in the dark that I leaned against the ladder, trembling and unable to ascend, and upon me was that old sickness at the pit of the stomach, caused always by the spectacle of physical violence. In this instance I could not see, but I could hear the impact of the blows, the soft crushing sound made by flesh striking forcibly against flesh. Then there was the crashing about of the entwined bodies, the labored breathing, the short quick gasps of sudden pain. 
there must have been more men in the conspiracy to murder the captain and mate for by the sounds i knew that leach and johnson had been quickly reinforced by some of their mates get a knife somebody leach was shouting pound him on the head mash his brains out was johnson's cry but after his first bellow wolf larsen made no noise he was fighting grimly and silently for life he was sore beset down at the very first he had been unable to gain his feet and for all of his tremendous strength i felt that there was no hope for him the force with which they struggled was vividly impressed on me for i was knocked down by their surging bodies and badly bruised but in the confusion i managed to crawl into an empty lower bunk out of the way all hands we've got him we've got him i could hear leech crying who oh, demanded those who had been really asleep and who had wakened to they knew not what it's the bloody mate was leech's crafty answer strained from him in a smothered sort of way this was greeted with whoops of joy and from then on wolf larsen had seven strong men on top of him lewis i believe taking no part in it the forecastle was like an angry hive of bees aroused by some more water what ho below there i heard latimer shout down the scuttle too cautious to descend into the inferno of passion he could hear raging beneath him in the darkness. Won't somebody get a knife? Oh, won't somebody get a knife? Leech pleaded in the first interval of comparative silence. The number of the assailants was a cause of confusion. They blocked their own efforts, while Wolf Larsen, with but a single purpose, achieved his. This was to fight his way across the floor to the ladder. Though in total darkness, I followed his progress by its sound. No man less than a giant could have done what he did, once he had gained a foot of the ladder. Step by step, by the might of his arms, a whole pack of men striving to drag him back and down, he drew his body up from the floor till he stood erect. And then, step by step, hand and foot, he slowly struggled up the ladder. The very last of all I saw. For Latimer, having finally gone for a lantern, held it so that its light shone down the scuttle. Wolf Larsen was nearly to the top, though I could not see him. All that was visible was the mass of men fastened upon him. It squirmed about like some huge, many-legged spider, and swayed back and forth to the regular roll of the vessel. And still, step by step, with long intervals between, the mass ascended. Once it tottered, about to fall back, but the broken hold was regained, and it still went up. Who is it? Latimer cried. In the rays of the lantern, I could see his perplexed face peering down. Larson! I heard a muffled voice from within the mass. Latimer reached down with his free hand. I saw a hand shoot up to clasp his. Latimer pulled, and the next couple of steps were made with a rush. Then Wolf Larson's other hand reached up and clutched the end of the scuttle. The mass swung clear of the ladder, the men still clinging to their escaping foe. They began to drop off, to be brushed off against the sharp edge of the scuttle, to be knocked off by the legs which were now kicking powerfully. Leech was the last to go, falling sheer back from the top of the scuttle, and striking on head and shoulders upon his sprawling mates beneath. Wolf Larsen and the lantern disappeared, and we were left in darkness. End of chapter 14 Chapter 15 
There was a deal of cursing and groaning as the men at the bottom of the ladder crawled to their feet. Somebody strike a light. My thumb's out of joint, said one of the men, Parsons, a swarthy, saturnine man, boat steerer in Standish's boat, in which Harrison was puller. You'll find it knocking about by the bits, Leach said, sitting down on the edge of the bunk in which I was concealed. There was a fumbling and a scratching of matches, and the sea lamp flared up dim and smoky, and in its weird light bare-legged men moved about nursing their bruises and caring for their hurts. Ufti Ufti laid hold of Parson's thumb, pulling it out stoutly and snapping it back into place. I noticed at the same time that the Kanaka's knuckles were laid open clear across and to the bone. He exhibited them exposing beautiful white teeth in a grin as he did so, and explaining that the wounds had come from striking Wolf Larsen in the mouth. So it was you, you black beggar, belligerently demanded one Kelly, an Irish-American and a longshoreman, making his first trip to sea and boat puller for Kerfoot. As he made the demand, he spat out a mouthful of blood and teeth and shoved his pugnacious face close to Ufti Ufti. The Kanaka leaped backwards to his bunk, to return with a second leap, flourishing a long knife. Oh, go lay down, you make me tired, Leech interfered. He was evidently, for all his youth and inexperience, cock of the forecastle. Go on, you, Kelly, you leave Ufti alone. How in hell did he know it was you in the dark? Kelly subsided with some muttering, and the Kanaka flashed his white teeth in a grateful smile. He was a beautiful creature, almost feminine in the pleasing lines of his figure, and there was a softness and dreaminess in his large eyes which seemed to contradict his well-earned reputation of strife and action. How did he get away? Johnson asked. He was sitting on the side of his bunk, the whole pose of his figure indicating utter dejection and hopelessness. He was still breathing heavily from the exertion he had made. His shirt had been ripped entirely from him in the struggle, and blood from a gash in his cheek was flowing down his naked chest, marking a red path across his white thigh and dripping to the floor. Because he is the devil, as I told you before, was Leech's answer, and thereat he was on his feet and raging his disappointment with tears in his eyes. And not one of you to get a knife! was his unceasing lament. But the rest of the hands had a lively fear of consequences to come and gave no heed to him. How will he know which was which? Kelly asked, and as he went on, he looked murderously about him. Unless one of us pitches. He'll know as soon as he claps eyes on us, Parson replied. One look at you would be enough. Tell him the deck flopped up and gouged your teeth out of your jaw, Lewis grinned. He was the only man who was not out of his bunk, and he was jubilant in that he possessed no bruises to advertise that he had had a hand in the night's work. Just wait till he gets a glimpse of your mugs tomorrow, the gang of you, he chuckled. We'll say we thought it was the mate, said one, and another, I know what I'll say, that I hear the row, jumped out of my bunk, got a jolly good crack on the jaw for my pains, and sailed in myself. Couldn't tell who or what it was in the dark, and just hit out. And it was me, of course, Kelly seconded, his face brightening for a moment. 
Leach and Johnson took no part in the discussion, and it was plain to see that their mates looked upon them as men for whom the worst was inevitable, who were beyond hope and already dead. Leach stood their fears and reproaches for some time. Then he broke out, You make me tired. A nice lot of gazabas you are. If you talked less with your mouth and did something with your hand, he'd have been done with by now. Why couldn't one of you, just one of you, get me a knife when I sung out? You make me sick. A beefin' and bellerin' round, as though he'd kill you when he gets you. You know damn well he won't. Can't afford to. No shipping masters or beachcombers over here. And he wants you in his business, and he wants you bad. Who's to pull or steer or sail ship if he loses you? It's me and Johnson have to face the music. Get into your bunks now and shut your faces. I want to get some sleep. That's all right, all right, Parson spoke up. Maybe he won't do for us. But mark my words, he'll be an icebox to this ship from now on. All the while, I had been apprehensive concerning my own predicament. What would happen to me when these men discovered my presence? I could never fight my way out as Will Larson had done. And at this moment, Latimer called down the scuttles. Hum, the old man wants you. He ain't down here, Parsons called back. Yes, he is, I said, sliding out of the bunk and striving my hardest to keep my voice steady and bold. The sailors looked at me in consternation. Fear was strong in their faces, and the devilishness which comes of fear. I'm coming, I shouted up to Latimer. No, you don't, Kelly cried, stepping between me and the ladder, his right hand shaped into a veritable strangler's clutch. You damn little sneak. I'll shut your mouth. Let him go, Leach commanded. Not on your life, was the angry retort. Leach never changed his position on the edge of the bunk. Let him go, I say, he repeated, but this time his voice was gritty and metallic. The Irishman wavered. I made to step by him, and he stood aside. When I had gained the ladder, I turned to the circle of brutal and malignant faces peering at me through the semi-darkness. A sudden and deep sympathy welled up in me. I remembered the Cockney's way of putting it, how God must have hated them that they should be tortured so. I have seen and heard nothing, believe me, I said quietly. I tell you, he's all right, I could hear Leach saying as I went up the ladder. He don't like the old man no more than you or me. I found Wolf Larson in the cabin, stripped and bloody, waiting for me. He greeted me with one of his whimsical smiles. Come, get to work, doctor. The signs are favorable for an extensive practice this voyage. I don't know what the ghost would have been without you. And if I could only cherish such noble sentiments, I would tell you her master is deeply grateful. I knew the run of the simple medicine chest the ghost carried, and while I was heating water on the cabin stove and getting the things ready for dressing his wounds, he moved about, laughing and chatting and examining his hurts with a calculating eye. I had never before seen him stripped, and the sight of his body quite took my breath away. It has never been my weakness to exalt the flesh far from it, but there is enough of the artist in me to appreciate its wonder. I must say that I was fascinated by the perfect lines of Wolf Larsen's figure, and by what I may term the terrible beauty of it. I had noted the men in the forecastle, powerfully muscled, though some of them were, there had been something wrong with all of them, 
an insufficient development here, an undue development there, a twist or a crook that destroyed symmetry, legs too short or too long, or too much sinew or bone exposed, or too little. Ufti Ufti had been the only one whose lines were at all pleasing. While in so far as they pleased, that far had they been what I should call feminine. But Wolf Larsen was the man type, the masculine, and almost a god in his perfectness. As he moved about or raised his arms, the great muscles leapt and moved under the satiny skin. I have forgotten to say that the bronze ended with his face. His body, thanks to his Scandinavian stock, was fair as the fairest woman's. I remember his putting his hand up to feel of the wound on his head, and my watching the biceps move like a living thing under its white sheath. It was the biceps that had nearly crushed out my life once that I had seen strike so many killing blows. I could not take my eyes from him. I stood motionless, a roll of antiseptic cotton in my hand, unwinding and spilling itself down to the floor. He noticed me, and I became conscious that I was staring at him. God made you well, I said. Did he? He answered. I have often thought so myself, and wondered why. Purpose, I began. Utility, he interrupted. This body was made for use. These muscles were made to grip and tear and destroy living things that get between me and life. But have you thought of the other living things? They too have muscles, of one kind and another, made to grip and tear and destroy. And when they come between me and life, I outgrip them, out-tear them, out-destroy them. Purpose does not explain that. Utility does. It is not beautiful. I protested. Life isn't, you mean, he smiled. Yet you say I was made well. Do you see this? He braced his legs and feet, pressing the cabin floor with his toes in a clutching sort of way. Knots and ridges and mounds of muscles writhed and bunched under the skin. Feel them, he commanded. They were hard as iron. And I observed also that his whole body had unconsciously drawn itself together, tense and alert. That muscles were softly crawling and shaping about the hips, along the back, and across the shoulders. That the arms were slightly lifted, their muscles contracting, the fingers crooking till the hands were like talons, and that even the eyes had changed expression, and into them were coming watchfulness and measurement and a light none other than a battle. Stability, equilibrium, he said, relaxing on the instant and sinking his body back into repose. Feet with which to clutch the ground, legs to stand on and to help withstand, while with arms and hands, teeth and nails, I struggle to kill and to be not killed. Purpose? Utility is the better word. I did not argue. I had seen the mechanism of the primitive fighting beast, and I was as strongly impressed as if I had seen the engines of a great battleship, or Atlantic liner. I was surprised, considering the fierce struggle in the forecastle at the superficiality of his hurts, and I pride myself that I dressed them dexterously. 
With the exception of several bad wounds, the rest were merely severe bruises and lacerations. The blow which he had received before going overboard had laid his scalp open several inches. This, under his direction, I cleansed and sewed together, having first shaved the edges of the wound. Then the calf of his leg was badly lacerated, and looked as though it had been mangled by a bulldog. Some sailor, he told me, had laid hold of it by his teeth at the beginning of the fight, and hung on and been dragged to the top of the forecastle ladder until he was kicked loose. By the way, Hump, as I have remarked, you are a handy man, Wolf Larsen began when my work was done. As you know, we're short a mate. Hereafter, you shall stand watches, receive $75 per month, and be addressed fore and aft as Mr. Van Wayne. I, I don't understand navigation, you know, I gasped. Not necessary at all. I really do not care to sit in the high places, I objected. I find life precarious enough in my present humble situation. I have no experience. Mediocrity, you see, has its compensations. He smiled as though it were all settled. I won't be mate on this hell ship, I cried defiantly. I saw his face grow hard and the merciless glitter come into his eyes. He walked to the door of his room, saying, And now, Mr. Van Waden, good night. Good night, Mr. Larson. I answered weakly. End of chapter 15